Hello and welcome to our Trail Magic podcast, where we seek to equip college students with resources, biblical teaching, and helpful conversations for the journey ahead. Today, we begin a short message series in the book of Acts that we're calling Church on the Go. In today's message, Josh addresses the question, is the church an institution or is it a movement? Getting this question wrong will ultimately lead us away from fulfilling Jesus's mission of making disciples. How would you answer? Let's hit the trail. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at portions of the book of Acts in a series that I'm calling Church on the Go. And one of the things we're going to see is the agility and the flexibility of the early church and how they continued to be the church even when they were spread out and facing some pretty significant restrictions of their own. So with a good number of you back home for summer and everything, I thought it might be helpful to explore how you can be the church wherever you are, uh, wherever God has placed you. You can be the church on the go. So I want to start with a question for you to consider. And the question is this, is Christianity primarily a movement or is it an institution? Is Christianity primarily a movement or an institution? Let me define the two for you and see if that helps at all. The definition of an institution goes like this. It is a significant practice, relationship, or organization in a society or a culture. So an example might be marriage or the family or the government. A movement, however, is defined like this. It's a group of people working together to achieve a goal. I know that's kind of abstract a little bit, probably doesn't help a ton. Um, Listen to this quote by David Bosch. Maybe this will clear it up. The difference between an institution and a movement is that one crosses boundaries and the other guards them. Listen again. The difference between an institution and a movement is that one crosses boundaries, the other seeks to guard them. How about now? Is that helpful? So is Christianity fundamentally an institution that guards, preserves, and just maintains its boundary lines? Or did Jesus come to start something in the first century that has not only crossed boundary lines, but has exploded them, shifting and reshaping the world over the last 2,000 years? I think you probably get the idea. Christianity was never intended to be an institution. Uh, In one sense, it is an institution, I guess, but following Jesus is a revolutionary movement. And that's what I want to talk about uh, today in this episode. So as we cruise through the first part of this book of Acts, I want you to notice how Jesus came to start a movement that we are invited and commanded to be a part of every day, wherever we are. You don't have to be here in Boone. You don't have to be here at Alliance Bible Fellowship. Wherever God has placed you, you're invited to be a part of what he is doing in this movement. So a few things for you to know about the book of Acts before we jump in. Just a quick uh, refresher for you. The book of Acts was written around, uh, written around A.D. 62 by Luke before Nero began viciously persecuting Christians in Rome and before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. The book of Acts is sort of like a volume two of Luke's gospel because Acts is detailing the coming of the Spirit, the birth of the church, and the takeoff of Christianity as a fledgling movement. So let's go to Acts chapter 1, 1 through 14, and read the text together. And then we'll look at three characteristics of this new movement we see right here in this passage. So Acts chapter 1, 1 through 14 reads like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, 
to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. That's important. To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you, taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went, to the, went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we're going to look at three characteristics quickly of this new movement we see in this text. The first is this, and we see it in verse 4. The disciples waited on God to empower them for the mission. They waited on God. I think it's clear that one of the hardest things for us to do today is wait. We live in an instant, microwavable world. I remember riding with my brother in Charlotte traffic several years ago when they were living there and we're sitting at a, a red light and, um, and, and when the light turned green, he began to honk at the car in front of us, just beep, 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 you know, as soon as the, the light turned green, I looked at him and I said, why'd you do that? Like it just turned green. And he said, it's just what you do here. The light turns green. You go. If they don't go, you hit the horn. <laughs> I mean, the reality is none of us like to wait anywhere for anything. But in verse 4, that's exactly what Jesus told them to do. But why? That's crucial. Crucial question. Why? They had just witnessed a miracle in the resurrection. I mean, why wait around? The reason he told them to wait was because the mission God was calling them to was not something they could accomplish in their own power in their own ingenuity or their own strategic planning. They were going to need some major help to accomplish this mission Jesus gave. So in Matthew 28, we discover that mission. And it's pretty simple and pretty clear. To make disciples of all nations. That's a giant mission. That is a spiritual mission. And the bottom line is this. We cannot accomplish a spiritual mission apart from the help and the empowering of the Spirit of God. And so they were told to wait for the Lord's help, say, would they receive the, the Holy Spirit to do this spiritual work? Someone asked Charles Spurgeon one time, How do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? And Spurgeon replied, You have forgotten that there are two of us. 
I mean, who was he talking about? Do you have a little mouse in his pocket or something? You know, who's the two of us? He was referring to the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him to lead him and fuel his efforts and keep his fire going when the naysayers and the critics blasted him publicly and when the depression and different things that he battled came against him in strong fashion. See, as a follower of Jesus, you are called to a spiritual mission first to help people become followers of Jesus. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And I think sometimes we get the cart way out in front of the horse. We are called to a spiritual mission to seek the kingdom. So of all the things we might do as a church, our first mission is to introduce people to Jesus and help them become his disciples. The word disciple means a student, a follower, a learner. We desperately need the help and the empowering of God's Spirit to do a job that size. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is in verse 8, and it is that the disciples were committed to following Jesus' instructions. They were sold out. They were committed to follow these instructions. What's the last thing Jesus said to his followers before he ascended back to heaven? What is it? Look in verse 8. It says, You will be my what? my witnesses. You're going to tell people about who I am and what I came to do. And you're going to tell them how my story has changed your story and how my story can change their story as well. I mean, think about that. Does that sound to you like Jesus is interested in establishing an institution and just simply maintaining boundary lines? Not even close. His goal is to start a movement that would ripple out of an upper room all the way to the ends of the earth. I love the mission statement uh, of a church that my family used to attend a couple of years ago. The mission statement says, we are, in quotes, committed to making disciples of those nearest, our neighbors, and the nations. Those nearest, our neighbors, and the nations. That's exactly what Jesus said, a paraphrase, I guess you'd say, of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But see, you don't get there by protecting, preserving, and maintaining boundary lines. Francis Chan said the reality is God is using his church around the world to transform lives and to accomplish his will on earth. But it is also true that many churches are more concerned with preserving the status quo than reaching out to the people around them. See, Jesus told us what to do. Make disciples. Be his witnesses. So every effort of the church ought to serve that one single purpose. And if we can't honestly say that it does, then why would we waste energy and effort on doing something that God did not tell us to do? See, I think that's why so many churches have discovered the power of a mission statement. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done any roofing before. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But when you put a roof down, you have to use things called uh, a chalk line. It's just where you pull a big string with chalk on it uh, across the the uh, the roof to make sure that you're putting down straight lines. Mission statements are like that. They're like chalk lines um, when you put down uh, shingles on a roofing job. Because if you don't lay those chalk lines, you can start getting off track and you cannot even realize how bad offline you are until you're halfway up the roof and everything is so whoppy-jawed, you got to rip off all the shingles and start over. That's why some churches die, is they lose sight of the mission. They had no chalk lines to keep their lines straight. And so a mission statement helps to keep us on track. It helps us make decisions as we move forward 
It helps us say no to things that don't fit the mission so that we can say yes to the things that do help us accomplish the mission. If you go read the rest of Acts and look at how focused the early church was, you'll see they were, they were zeroed in on their mission. They were committed first and foremost to obeying Jesus' great commission. So in 1.8, Acts 1.8, they're told that they're going to be witnesses to the end of the earth. And if you look by Acts 8 and verse 1, the gospel is headed to the ends of the earth when Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. So they were committed to this, and, and the Lord was blessing their efforts. The third thing I want you to see is, in verse 12, this great movement of God began when God's people were united in prayer. When they prayed together, they saw Jesus ascend back to heaven in verse 9. Then they went back to Jerusalem, to the upper room, and the scripture says they were continually united in what? In prayer continually united in prayer. Think about what I just said, continually, without ceasing. United, togetherness, in prayer, coming before the throne of our King. So what held this group together, even though they were wildly diverse? Go research their backgrounds. Wildly diverse. What held them together? Praying together. What gave them a united focus when they brought their own individual agendas? Praying together. What slowed the spread of gossip and division in their ranks? Praying together. The roots of this great movement of God went deep into the soil of prayer. See, prayer is not optional to the work of God. It is vital. It is fundamental. And the apostles set the course for the church, even for the church today, in a united spirit of continual prayer. And God blessed their efforts. And so as the church grew and changed, you see the one constant in the book of Acts was a prayerful dependence on God for strength and for help and for direction. The famous pastor uh, from Chicago, Harry Ironside, says this, When God is going to do something great, he moves the hearts of people to pray. When God's going to do something great, He moves the hearts of people to pray. He stirs them up to pray so that they might be prepared for it, end quote. I had a seminary professor uh, years ago that said this in our evangelism class. He said, movements change the world. If you break it down to its essence, Christianity is a movement to be advanced, but we have sadly turned it into an institution that we spend far too many resources on trying to maintain. So this summer, uh, being away from Boone, being away from Alliance, uh, you're back home in your hometown, at your home church, hopefully plugging in there and, and serving and growing and uh, rekindling some great relationships. You get a chance to be the church on the go, to be a part of a movement that is advancing God's kingdom by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So whether you're here in Boone or whether you're uh, uh, back home in the same pew that you sat in since you were a little kid, uh, God is calling you to join him on his mission through his power for his glory. So I want you to consider how you can get involved wherever you are, wherever God has placed you in this missional movement that Jesus has given to you and me as followers of Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll, uh, we'll finish up. Father, thank you for your word in Acts chapter 1. Thank you for the observations we can take from this text. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, drive this message home, these observations home to the hearts of every person that hears them, that they are called uh, to be caught up in this mission that you uh, are doing as you as the kingdom of God is advancing. And, and we have a part to play in it. And we have 
uh, the blessing of your Holy Spirit filling us if we are in Christ. And we need the Spirit to do a spiritual work. Lord, I pray you'd use this message in a powerful way in somebody's life. Build up your kingdom through it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Trail Magic is a production of the College Ministry of Alliance Bible Fellowship in Boone, North Carolina. For more information, go to abfboone.org. Thanks for tuning in.